All right. We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul here doing The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. We are starting a new chapter today. Today is chapter three. Chapter three is called, in quotes, naturalized merits. Paul, do you want to start her off here? Yeah, yeah. So there's like a little opening and then it gets into the first section. So uh, the opening goes, uh, finally, I want to point out the merits of this model as a naturalized account of the actual historical record, one which has explanatory as well as normative aspirations. Arguably, we are in a better position to bring about the supposedly desired political ideals if we can identify and explain the obstacles to their realization. In tracking the actual moral consciousness of most white agents, in depicting the actual political realities non-whites have always recognized, the theory of the racial contract shows its superiority to the ostensibly abstract and general, but actually white social contract uh and then starting with like section one it is the racial contract historically tracks the actual moral slash political consciousness of most white moral agents moral theory being a branch of value theory traditionally deals with the realm of the ideal norms to which we must try to live up as moral agents and political philosophy is nowadays conceived of as basically an application of ethics to the social and political realm so it's supposed to be dealing with ideals also but in the first two chapters of this book i've spent a great deal of time talking about the actual historical record and the actual norms and ideals that have prevailed in recent global history I have been giving what, in the current jargon of philosophers, would be called a naturalized account rather than an idealized account. And that is why I said from the beginning that I preferred the classic use of contract, which is seeking to describe and explain as well as to to prescribe. But if ethics and political philosophy are focused on norms, we want to endorse ideal ideals, so to speak, what really was the point of this exercise. What would be the point of naturalizing ethics, which is explicitly the realm of the ideal? My suggestion is that by looking at the actual historically dominant moral-slash-political consciousness and the actual historically dominant moral-slash-political ideals, we are better enabled to prescribe for society than by starting from ahistorical abstractions. In other words, the point is not to endorse this deficient consciousness and these repugnant ideals, but... By recognizing their past and current influence and power and identifying their sources to correct for them. Realizing a better future requires not merely admitting the ugly truth of the past and present, but understanding the ways in which these realities were made invisible, acceptable to the white population. Uh, It's crazy how hard that is. Uh, We talked about it all the time, but just, just that step of getting people to admit the past without, um, internalizing it is is way harder than i would have have ever guessed Uh, or no i mean i think we want people to internalize it we just don't want people uh, i mean internalizing um, the guilt i guess i should have okay yeah yeah uh yeah internalizing what happened but internalizing the guilt of the situation Uh, yes that we want assuming that right we want Mm -hmm. you to internalize the guilt i just wish it was something i understood more from like a personal level you know, obviously, when I'm confronted with something I've been doing incorrectly or whatever, I'm not going to pretend that every time I'm just like, oh, thanks for pointing that out. But obviously, I can be stubborn in the moment. Um, and even that moment can be days long, if you will. But I don't understand building an identity off of hiding from the truth, if you will. Like, it's just, it's, I, 
I don't get it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not. And maybe because I don't get it, I do it in ways I don't understand. It is wild to me that so much of progress is halted by people just not wanting to admit that anything wrong was ever done. Like the the standard, and we've talked about before, but like Tim Pool's whole thing of like pointing out racial inequalities or systemic racism is just promoting new racism. It's just promoting, like I guess um, California is like trying to pass some law that changes how they legally deal with race so that they can be on the same uh, legal level that a lot of other states are on so that they can do the the current form of affirmative action, which has been obviously uh, defanged over the decades. But even with that, Tim Pool's like, oh, because of this new law uh, that says that people have to discriminate on race, that means that they are like they're neo segregationists. <laughs> no one in uh, in Sacramento that's writing these bills is thinking like, oh yes, now we will be able to make uh, lunch counters that only serve black people. And it's just so fucking stupid at its base. If you want to know if something is discriminatory. Just is it trying to make things equal for people? Generally, if the answer to that is yes, it's not a discriminatory bill. Like, yeah, that that's what gets to me about the whole thing. It's like acknowledging race and the fact that it has caused issues in itself isn't racism. Yeah, right. Like, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like it would be unbelievably cool if we ever reached a level where race just had no – you know, no consequences whatsoever, no implications, nothing like that. But we are so far from that reality that it's not even a viable talking point, you know, like it's just fuck, fuck. And it's also like, and you know, like America is good at some things. It's very comfortable for me to be an Armenian in America. I'm not going to lie about that. It's not a problem for me. I could go lots of other places where it wouldn't be comfortable, but, um, you know, that's how it is for all kinds of shit. It's just like, dude, racism exists. It's not just an American thing. It's a global thing. It's a human fucking thing. Like, uh, and pretending that it doesn't exist um, is exactly how we get to these systemic bullshit arguments um, where a bunch of people feel like they're being accused of racism when it's not even on the fucking table. Um, and, and on a side note, if you constantly feel like you're being racist, uh, you probably are. Just Well, and like we've <laughs> talked about, uh, before, you know, if if you're raised in a society with a racial contract, if you're raised in a society that based on white supremacy, then obviously all of us are going to have a level of racist ideas that have been put into our minds. Question is, are you going to try to be aware of those? And are you going to try to not act upon those racist ideas? It's just like um, the story I told with the dude, the black dude with the cat carrier. The problem is not me being like, whoa, why does a black dude have a cat? The problem would be when I go to management and say, hey, I think a black dude just stole someone's cat. That's the problem, right? That's when it becomes a problem, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, it's a problem. The ideas are a problem, but they're not uh, a problem to the extent that someone should, in my opinion, necessarily be shamed for them. They just need to be the, – the part where people do need to be shamed is when they take actions on those ideas that end up uh, negatively uh, affecting others, right? Calling the police because fucking black people are barbecuing or whatever. Yeah, and self examination 
is never like a bad thing. You know, it happens. Uh, it's how we all grow. Yeah, all the time. If we, and, and that's part of what I don't get is it's like there's like that fear to question it just in case it could turn out to be racist or whatever. It's like, well, then, mm-hmm. you know, yep. just move yep. on and fix it. Uh, we want to know both to describe and to explain the circumstances that actually blocked achievement of the ideal raceless ideals. We want to know what went wrong in the past, is going wrong now, and is likely continued. is likely to continue to go wrong in the future if we do not guard against it. Now, by its relative silence on the question of race, conventional moral theory would lead the unwary student with no experience of the world, the visiting anthropologist from Galactic Central, say, to think that deviations from the ideal have been contingent, random, theoretically opaque, or not worth the trouble to theorize. Such a visitor might conclude that all people have generally tried to live up to the norm, but given inevitable human frailty, have sometimes fallen short. But this conclusion is, in fact, simply false. Racism and racially structured discrimination have not been deviations from the norm, they have been the norm. Not merely in the sense of de facto statistical distribution patterns, but, as I emphasized at the start, in the sense of being formally codified, written down, and proclaimed as such. From this perspective, the racial contract has underwritten the social contract, so that duties, rights, and liberties have routinely been assigned on a racially differentiated basis. To understand the actual moral practice of past and present, one needs not merely the standard abstract discussions of, say, the conflicts in people's consciences between self-interest and empathy with others, but a frank appreciation of how the racial contract creates a racialized moral psychology. Whites will then act in racist ways while thinking of themselves as acting morally. In other words, they will experience genuine cognitive difficulties in recognizing certain behavior patterns as racist, so that quite apart from the questions of motivation and bad faith, they will be morally handicapped simply from the conceptual point of view in seeing and doing the right thing. As I emphasized at the start, the racial contract prescribes as a condition for membership in the polity an epistemology of ignorance so well put so well put and something you know we are not just with the racial contract but with other works that we're talking about all of the time this this need for ignorance an epistemology of ignorance is probably the best sentence or like phrasing i've seen of that it's depressing obviously but it's it's hard to from an outside perspective it's easy to understand conceptually but it's hard to understand on like an individual to individual basis i suppose for me Okay. Yeah. Feminist political philosophers have documented the striking uniformity of opinion among the classic male theorists on the subordination of women, so that as polar as their positions may be on other political or theoretical questions, there is common agreement on this. Plato, the idealist, and Aristotle, the materialist, agree that women should be subordinate, as do Hobbes, the absolutist, and Rousseau, the radical Democrat. With the racial contract, as we have seen, there is a similar pattern among the contractarians, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Kant, and their theoretical adversaries, the anti-contractarian Hume, who denies that any race other than the white one has produced a civilization. The utilitarian Mill, who denies the applicability of his anti paternalist harm principle to barbarians and maintains that they need European colonial despotism 
the the historist G. W. F. Hegel, uh, who denies that Africa has any history and suggests that blacks were morally improved th- through being enslaved. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, Hegel. Awesome people. Yeah, seriously. And I have to admit, like, this is where I was saying, like, oh, I don't even understand the hesitancy or whatever. But every time that I get reminded that Hume was also racist makes me sad because I like so much of Hume. But then it's like, oh, but wait, he was a fucking racist asshole, too. God damn it. Yeah. So that the racial contract is um, or 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 what is that? Orthogonal. But I don't know. Orthogonal. Will you look it up? It being in quotes makes me worried. It's like, yeah. God damn it, is that going to be like a a word well, and that is someone it gonna made be up? Like, like initially, I'd be like, okay, orthogonal. So like orthopedics, right? <laughs> but I don't think right. that's going to be the O R T H O G O N A L. Okay. Involving right angles, or I'm guessing this one, uh, it's statistically independent. So the, the racial contract is ortho angle to varying directions of their thought okay so it's like independent or like okay kind of like ties back into the whole um like uh he was saying like a um like an outlier or whatever okay uh so that the racial contract is orthogonal to the varying directions of their thought the common assumption they can all take for granted no matter what their theoretical divergences on other questions. There is also the evidence of silence, where it's, who's this, this dude's name? This name is brutal. I don't know who this is, and I don't know whether to make the T.I. be like a like Grotius or to call it Grotius. Okay. Grotius, uh, Grotius's magisterial on natural law and the wrongness of the conquest of the Indies. Locke's stirring letter concerning the treatment of the Indians. Kant's moving on the personhood of Negroes. Mill's famous con- condemnatory implications on utilitarianism for English colonialism. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels' outraged political economy of slavery. Intellectuals write about what interests them and what they find important, and especially if they write if the writer is prolific. Silence constitutes good prima facie evidence that the subject was not of particular interest. By their failure to denounce the great crimes inseparable from the European conquest, or by the half-heartedness of their condemnation, or by their actual endorsement of it in some cases, most of the leading European ethical theorists reveal their complicity in the racial contract. What we need to do, then, is to identify and learn to understand the workings of the racialized ethic. How were people able consistently to do the wrong thing while thinking that they were doing the right thing? In part, it is a problem of cognition and of white moral cognitive dysfunction. 
For example, a useful uh, a useful recent survey article on naturalizing ethics by Alvin G- Goldman suggests three areas in which cognitive science may have implications for moral theory. A, the cognitive materials used in moral thinking, such as the logic of concept application and their possible determination by the cultural environment of the agent. B, judgments about subjective welfare and how how they may be affected by comparing oneself with others. And C, the role of empathy in influencing moral feelings. That's cool stuff. I wonder, and since this was done in 98, I bet there's been more work done on that. For sure. No, that'd be very interesting. Um, all right. Now it should be obvious that if racism is a, as central to the polity as I have argued, then it, it will have a major shaping effect on white cognizers all these areas. A, because of the intellectual atmosphere produced by the racial contract. Whites will, in phase one take for granted the appropriateness of concepts legitimizing the racial order, privileging them as the master race and regulating non-whites to subpersonhood. And later in phase two, the appropriateness of the concepts that uh, de-race the polity, denying its actually racial, racial structuring. B, because of the reciprocally dependent definitions of superior whiteness, inferior non-whiteness. Whites may consciously or unconsciously assess how they're doing by a scale that depends in part on how non-whites are doing. Since the essence of whiteness is entitlement to differential privilege vis-a-vis non-whites as a whole. C, because the racial contract requires the exploitation of non-whites. It requires in whites the cultivation of patterns of effect and empathy that are only weakly, if at all, influenced by non-white suffering. In all three cases, then, there are interesting structures of moral cognitive distortion that could be linked to race, and one hopes that this new research program will be exploring some of them. Though the past record of neglect does not give any great reason for optimism. This... Sorry to interrupt. I think that yeah. line is kind of important, and I think about it all the time, just that though the past record of neglect does not give any great reason for optimism. And I think that line kind of sums up, I feel like a lot of time in modern American politics, say with like Democrats and leftists, right? Democrats will be like, well, we're doing this and then not understand why people don't have a lot of belief that it will be effective or change anything. And it's because fake Democrats also want to like whitewash the past and be like, well, we know this has never worked before, but it'll work this time. Um, And then in arguments, I hate being told like, well, why are you being so pessimistic? Uh, And it's just like, well, because there's hundreds of years of ships showing that this won't work and this doesn't seem to be a good enough step. Or that they won't even enact the step, but we don't even have to go into the complexity of of politics. We can just, like he's talked about here, the thinkers and the theorists have chosen not to even explore or talk about in detail these topics. All right, so uh, this partitioned moral concern can usefully be thought of as a kind of Heron-Volk ethics, 
uh, with the principles applicable to the white subset, the humans, mutating suitably as they cross the color line to the non-white subset, the less than humans. Uh, Susan Apato uh, has done a detailed study of moralities of exclusion in which certain individuals or groups are perceived as outside the boundary in which moral values, rules, and considerations of fairness apply. So this would be a racial version of such a morality. That's cool uh, that she's that someone has thought about that and done that sort of stuff. Uh, one could then generate variously a Heronvolk Lockeanism, where whiteness itself becomes property. Uh, non-whites do not fully or at all own themselves, and non-white labor does not appropriate nature. A Heronvolk Kantianism, where non-whites count as subpersons of considerably less than. In- uh, infinite value required to give racial difference, deference rather than equal respect to white persons. And white self-respect, correspondingly, is conceptually tied to this non-white different deference. And a Heronvolk utilitarianism where non-whites count distributively for less than one and are deemed to suffer less actually than whites. The actual details of the basic values of particular normative theory, property rights, personhood, and respect, welfare, are not important since all theories can be appropriately adjusted internally to bring about the desired outcome. What is crucial is the theorist's adherence to the racial contract. Being its primary victims, non-whites have, of course, always been aware of this particular schism running through the white psyche. Many years ago, in his classic novel, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison and his nameless black narrator point out that whites must have a peculiar reciprocal a uh, construction of their inner eyes, which renders black Americans invisible since they refuse to see me. The racial contract includes an epistemological contract, an epistemology of ignorance. Recognition is a, a form of agreement, and by the terms of the racial contract, whites have agreed not to recognize blacks as equal persons. Thus, the white pedestrian who bumps into the black narrator at the start is a representative figure, somebody lost in a dream world, but didn't he control that dream world, which, alas, is only too real, and didn't he rule me out of it? And if he had yelled for a policeman, wouldn't I have been taken for the offending one? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Similarly, James Baldwin argues that white supremacy forced white Americans into racializations so fantastic that they approached the pathological, generating, generating a tortured ignorance so structured that one could not raise certain issues with uh, whites because even if I should speak, no one would believe me. And paradoxically, they would not believe me precisely because they would know that what I said was true. And that um, that right there just reminds me of um, um, like the whole police brutality thing. Yeah, just, just black people not even being able to talk about uh, with white people their life experience in the yeah. U.S., and it's, uh, I think, s- such a visible thing just in conservative thought in general. 
um, of just not wanting to listen to anything because it could be or because it is realistically the truth. Um, and I say that just off the basis of how well, I often not, not see... just not just conservatives too. I'm sure there are countless. I mean, oh yeah, fucking, all kinds of people. Know, I just yeah. my actual things I can point out would just be internet spaces. Whereas in most conservative threads, they completely ban and censor the hell out of anything in it. Like you, if you put a comment, it will be removed. Uh, as opposed to maybe even like neolib places where they'll downvote the hell out of it. And make sure it's not red, but they won't delete it from existence, which is, I mean, that's, that's such a power, a powerful power move to be in a position where you can just regulate all incoming information to be exactly what you want it to be. Yeah, choosing precisely not to believe the truth because it questions your power structure uh, is uh, still very much a reality today. Or makes you uh, admit that there is a power structure that favors you. Evasion and self-deception thus becomes the epistemic norm. Describing America's national web of self-deceptions on race, Richard Drennan cites as an explanation of Montesquieu's wry observation about African enslavement, it is impossible for us to suppose these creatures to be men, because allowing them to be men, a suspicion would follow that we ourselves are not Christians. Damn, that's a tight line, too. The founding ideology of the white settler state required the conceptual erasure of those societies that had been there before. Quote, For a writer of the time to have consistently regarded Indians as persons with a psychology of their own would have upended his world. It would have meant recognizing that the state of nature really had full-fledged people in it and that both it and the cherished civil society had started out as lethal figments of the European imagination, end quote. An Australian historian comments likewise on the existence of something like a cult of forgetfulness practiced on a national scale with respect to Aborigines. Lewis Gordon, working in the existential uh, feminine, feminine, phenomenological tradition, <laughs> draws on Sartrean notions to argue that in a world structured around race, Bad faith necessarily becomes pervasive. In bad faith, I flee a displeasing truth for a pleasing falsehood. I must convince myself that a falsehood is in fact true. Under the model of bad faith, the stubborn racist has made a choice not to admit certain uncomfortable truths about his group and chooses not to challenge certain comfortable falsehoods about other people. Since he has made this choice, he will resist whatever threatens it. The more the racist plays the game of evasion, the more estranged he will make himself from his inferiors, and the more he will sink into the world that is required to maintain this evasion. Damn. Uh, in the ideal polity, one seeks to know oneself and to know the world. Here, such knowledge may be dangerous. I don't know when that was written, but humans at least uh, are shockingly consistent. Correspondingly, the racial contract also explains that the actual astonishing historical Well, record, hold on, hold on, hold on. We know... I couldn't tell if it was Lewis Gordon. If someone's building on, on Sartre or Sartre, that means it has right. to be after World War II. Right, yes. So um, sometime mid-20th century. Yeah. You know, yeah. or late 20th century. Uh, correspondingly, the racial contract also explains the actual astonishing historical record of European atrocity against non-whites which quantitatively and qualitatively in numbers and horrific detail cumulatively dwarfs all other kinds of ethnically slash racially motivated massacres put together. Uh, La 
shit. La Leyenda Negra, the black legend of Spanish colonialism, defama uh, defamatory only in its individual, uh, invidious singling out of the Spanish, since it would later be emulated by Spain's envious competitors, the Dutch, French, and English, seeking to create legends of their own. The killing through mass murder and disease of 95% of the indigenous population of the Americas, with recent revisionist scholarship, as mentioned, having dramatically increased the estimates of the pre-conquest population, so that it has at roughly 100 million victims, this would easily rank as the single greatest act of genocide in human history. Uh, that's just fucking mind-numbing uh the infamous slogans now somewhat embarrassing to a generation living under uh just on a side note this is why people didn't didn't want the cleveland indians to stay named the cleveland indians for all of you fucking angry boomers that are like well it's been a baseball team for a hundred years it's like cool we're talking about a hundred million deaths here so maybe your baseball team isn't super important uh, the infamous slogan, now somewhat embarrassing to a generation living under a different phase of the contract, kill the nits and you'll have no lice. Jesus. His American cavalryman John House advised when he shot a Sauk infant at the Wisconsin Bad Axe Massacre. And the only good engine is a dead engine. The slow motion holocaust of African slavery, which is now estimated by some to have claimed 30 to 60 million lives in Africa, the middle passage and the seasoning process even before the degradation and destruction of slave life in the Americas. And it, it is so wild that this shit is still so taboo to talk about in America. Like Germans have fully accepted that they, you know, um, were behind the Holocaust and how terrible and disgusting it was. Um, and not to mitigate anything, but we're not even talking the same realm of, of deaths and lives displaced and cultures destroyed. Uh, and yet we're not allowed to talk about it you know uh, at least in any meaningful national scale yeah but i think a big difference about that is that um that the these, germans that lost. these genocides are the foundation for which our country was built right whereas the germans you know they they had the their whole unification prior to world war one you know late 1800s and they had the franco-prussian war that they won that that they could call the founding of modern day germany right so 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 hitler's genocide of the jews wasn't an integral part of the founding of modern day germany whereas ours was i also would sense. say yeah that a big difference is is that hitler lost had Hitler won, it probably would have been a very integral part to the founding of a modern Germany. Uh, and we won, and the European colonialists won. Um, so there was no need to reassess, like, what. Or, I think that might have some. Yes. In yeah. It as I think, well. yes. Yes. I think that you're right. You're right. That has a huge factor. Absolutely. Uh, the casual, uh, I'll just start, the seasoning process, even before the degradation and destruction of slave life in the Americas. The casual acceptance has no crime, just the necessary clearing of the territory of pestilential varmints and critters, of the random killing of stray Indians in America or aborigines in Australia or Bushmen in South Africa, the massively punitive European colonial retaliations after native uprisings, the death toll from the direct and indirect consequences of the forced labor of the colonial economies, such as the millions, uh, original estimates as high as 10 million, who died in the Belgian Congo as a result of Leopold II's quest for rubber, uh, though strangely, it is to Congolese rather than European savagery that a heart of darkness is attributed. The appropriation of the non-white body, 
not merely metaphorically, <clears throat> as the black body can be said to have been consumed on the slave plantations to produce European capital, but literally, whether as a utilitarian tool or as a war trophy, as utilitarian tools, Native Americans were occasionally skinned and made into bridal reins. For example, by U.S. President Andrew Jackson. I didn't even know that. That's fucking disgusting. And one more reason that Andrew Jackson is a pile of shit. Uh, Tasmanians were killed and used as dog meat. Fuck. And in World War II, Jewish hair was made into cushions. And not as well known, Japanese bones were made by some Americans into letter openers. Uh, as war trophies, Indian scalps, Vietnamese ears, and Japanese ears, gold teeth and skulls were corrected, or were collected. Uh, and also, I guess less well known, the Japanese were also fucking disgusting to the Chinese in the same period, uh, and were doing just as equally uh, as disgusting shit that had ever been done by one group of people to another. Uh, Life magazine carried a photograph of a Japanese skull being used as a hood ornament on a U.S. military vehicle, and some soldiers sent skulls home as presents for their girlfriends. To these, we can add the fact that because of the penal reforms advocated by Cesar Beccaria and others, torture was more or less eliminated in Europe by the end of the 18th century, while it continued to be routinely practiced in the colonies and on the slave plantations. Whippings, castrations, dismemberments, roastings over slow fires, being smeared with sugar, buried up to the neck and then left for insects to devour, being filled with gunpowder and then blown up, and so on. The fact that in America the medieval tradition of the auto de fe, the public burning, survived well into the 20th century, with thousands of spectators sometimes gathering for the festive occasion of the southern barbecue, bringing children, picnic baskets, etc., and subsequently fighting over the remains to see who could get the toes or the knuckle bones before adjourning to a celebratory dance in the evening. Fuck. The fact that the rules of war, at least theoretically regulating intra-European combat, were abandoned or suspended for non-Europeans. Uh, just a weird question. I wonder why that's not in that Dan Carlin episode. What? Uh, like lynchings and things of that nature. No, he does talk about. Oh, lynchings. does he? Does he? Yeah. Oh shit, yeah. dude! Yeah. I just yeah. re-listened to yeah. that. Yeah, I feel. So... Uh, when he's doing his whole like, you think this was so long ago, okay. but actually, if you think about it, okay. they did this sort of stuff in the South during Jim okay. Crow. Okay, like, I guess blah, blah. I must have missed that because yeah, maybe I. Was We're not so bird. different from right. those uh, those Romans or those medieval people. I know it feels impossible to understand the perspective from 2,000 years ago, but I think I can paint it. Um, yes. yes. No. yes. <laughs> uh, Andy can. Good job, Dan. Uh, the fact that the rules of war, at least theoretically regulating intra-European combat, were abandoned or suspended for non-Europeans, so that by papal edict, the use of the crossbow was initially forbidden against Christians, but permitted against Islam, the dum-dum uh, and quotes, hollow point, or parentheses, I mean, hollow point bullet, was originally prohibited within Europe, but used in the colonial wars. The machine gun was brought to perfection in the late 19th century in subjugating Africans, armed usually only with spears or a few obsolete far firearms, so that in the glorious 1898 British victory over the Sudanese at uh, Omdurman, for example, 11,000 black warriors were killed at the cost of 48 British soldiers. A long-distance massacre in which no Sudanese got closer than 300 yards from excuse me got no closer than 300 yards from the british positions the atomic bomb was used not once but twice against the civilian population of a yellow people that at a time when military necessity could only questionably be cited 
causing Justice uh, Radha Benod Paul. I'm sorry, no. uh, in his dissenting opinion in the Tokyo war crimes trials to argue that allied leaders should have been put on trial with the Japanese. Yep. We can mention the 6 million Jews killed in the camps and ghettos of Europe and the millions of members of other inferior races, uh, Romani, Slavs, killed there and by the Einsatzgruppen on the Eastern Front by the Nazi rewriting of the racial contract to make them too non-whites. The pattern of unpunished rape, torture, and massacre in the 20th century colonial-slash-neocolonial and in part racial wars of Algeria, during the course of which about one million Algerians, or one-tenth of the country's population, perished. In Vietnam, illustrated by the fact that Lieutenant William Calley was the only American convicted of war crimes in Vietnam, and for his role in directing the mass murder of 500 women, children, and old men or more cautiously and qualifiedly, oriental human beings, as the deposition put it, was sentenced to life at hard labor, but had his sentence quickly commuted by presidential intervention to house arrest at his Fort Benning bachelor apartment, where he remained for three years before being freed on parole, then, and now doubtless a bit puzzled by the fuss, since, as he told the military psychiatrists examining him, he did not feel as if he were killing humans, but rather that they were animals with one whom could not speak or reason. Well, and that's what I was going to say when you were talking about uh, Andrew Jackson with the reins, you know, and you're like, wow, that makes him even more of a piece of shit. What, you know, what the book is arguing and what we cannot forget is that with this racial contract, they did not view these human beings as human beings, right? Yeah. So if, if someone's to say, um, you know, uh, I made reins for my horse out of cattle hide. Everyone's like, okay, well, that makes sense. You know, you make reins out of uh, them because they're not human. And um, unfortunately, the same thing was thought of as um, for these, uh, for Oh, for people, sure. You know, uh, it's, it's still disgusting. And I don't want to give them too much historical forgiveness because it's not like there were no people who were right. aware that this yep. was wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, and Andrew Jackson was at a level of education and travel whether he had to actively fight understanding like uh the epistemological ignorance or whatever. Yeah, exactly exactly um and there are weird first person accounts about andrew jackson where i understood i understand that he kind of knew how shitty he was um, oh, one of them and it's totally weird and i won't go into it because i don't remember enough uh the super details uh he was really into hauntings and so he went to a place that was owned by black people and was haunted. And so he was able to them to acknowledge like how bad the government and treated them as shit. So all I'm saying is that at least for moments, and it's also mentioned he was probably pretty drunk during that time period, but for moments, these people understood what they're doing. And that's just so fucking gross. Yeah, um, totally, totally. But at least he's on that fat $20 bill. Right, exactly. Um, rather than countless other people. But then again, if anyone should be yeah. on money, uh, it's yes. fucking assholes, you know? Yeah, like, yep. it's very true. Uh, and it, this isn't something I hadn't, this is something I hadn't realized until very recently, but it's such a, a neoliberal fucking thing um, to be like, oh, we need to put like Harriet Tubman on money, yeah. you know? Look how far we've like, come. We now have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. We now have people whose lives were complete torture and shit, but it's okay because we put them on money. So they'll be right. fine with it. 
Right. right. Think about um, Frederick Douglass um, and how he said that uh, wage slavery was uh, akin to chattel slavery and that they both needed to be abolished. Uh, the idea that he should be on uh, money, um, you know, like he would he'd be rolling over in his grave if he was on any money. Oh, my so, God. Um, yeah. Which is probably why they want to put him on money. Um, right, right. Um, so next time will be part two for this section, which um, – what the fuck was this section called again? Um, uh, the racial contract historically tracks the actual moral slash political consciousness of most white moral agents. And we should and, uh, theoretically wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully next time we'll be able to wrap that shit up. Thank you all for uh, joining us. And have a great day. All critical race theory trainings and white privilege trainings calling it a sickness in our country. For those that aren't familiar with these terms, they are a major component of the leftist identitarian ideology. They believe that all white people are inherently racist, only white people can be racist, and they believe that certain concepts like hard work, saving for the future, and even scheduling are components of whiteness. In my opinion, this is overtly white supremacist, but this ideology has become increasingly pervasive. And even though Donald Trump is making this move, I am not convinced we will see the end of it just because of this. In fact, it shouldn't have even gotten into government in the first place.